Thank you for downloading this episode of Folk on Foot. Before we start, I just wanted to share a brief message. If you like what we do, we really need your support to keep going. You can join our wonderful band of members and you'll get great rewards. These include access to our amazing Folk on Foot on Film archive of hundreds of songs shot on location on our travels around the UK and Ireland. To sign up, just go to folkonfoot.com slash support us. You'll also get an ad-free version of all our episodes and an email postcard from me each time we go on a walk. If you just want the ad-free version, it'll cost you £3 a month and you can get it through your Apple Podcast app or at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Finally, if you don't want to make a regular commitment but do want to show how much you love us, you can simply buy us a coffee. You can also do that at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Every penny we get goes back into making more episodes of Folk on Foot. So thank you and enjoy the walk. We're back in the glorious county of Northumberland to meet somebody who played a huge part in the folk revival of the 1960s and who is still going strong. Sandra Kerr is something of a legend in folk music circles and I'm so looking forward to meeting her. And she lives in some beautiful countryside which I'm hoping she'll take us for a walk in. And I'm also hoping that we're going to meet her daughter Nancy who of course has taken part in this podcast before. So the two of them together will be a real treat. Sandra, how lovely to see you, and thank you for having us into your beautiful home. You're very welcome. And we're sitting in a room which is redolent <laughs> with music, isn't it? This, is this your music room? Oh, absolutely, and it's where I work, it's where I write lectures, it's where I write songs, it's where I do any research that I need in books, which is what we used to do in the olden days. You're sitting <laughs> holding the auto harp. Tell us about that. Well... The best one I ever had had previously belonged to Peggy Seeger and it was the one that I actually used when we did the Bagpuss music and it was a beautiful instrument but it was very old and eventually it did, because you actually pound it quite hard, it did actually give up the ghost. What about this instrument then? Oh, well, this is a cheapy, cheerful one that I replaced it with. But just in case you think, hmm, slightly odd tuning there Peggy Seeger and I quote said to me tuning the auto harp is total compromise so <laughs> who so cares about that, that? exactly yeah. <laughs> now there are other excuse. things in this room that are very important like this cushion here Indeed. with an owl on it tell us about that is that a bagpuss uh, souvenir it is I was allowed to choose something after we finished the films and this is the owl of Athens and it was one of the stories which I actually told as Madeline the Ragdoll, the Owl of Athens. And it was about how the owls came to make that particular hooting sound. <laughs> 
So, yes, and I love it. It's, um, it's now 50 years old. Bagpuss was written by Oliver Postgate. Yes, um, but you were asked to do the music with indeed. John Faulkner. Indeed. And how did the music evolve? Did you just take traditional songs and perform them for the show, or did you change them? Oh, both of those things, and wrote completely new pieces, sometimes tunes to Oliver's texts, sometimes adapting his texts, and then finding tunes for those. So a real mixture of traditional repertoire, adapted repertoire, newly composed material, both text and melody, and um, melodies put to Oliver's texts. And the amazing thing is that it had such an impact on successive generations because of repeats that you must constantly meet people who tell you about the impact it had on them as okay. children. Absolutely. And it's delightful that those people who are now grandparents, some of them, their grandchildren love Bagpuss. You know, Bagpuss is 50, and it is a source of immense pride for me that that is still enjoyed and loved and embraced by more generations, further and, generations. And for lots of people, it must have been their first exposure to traditional music. Oh, yes. I mean, I've had many students say that to me on the photo degree course, saying to me, you know, Bagpuss is what brought me to traditional... It's the first time I ever heard traditional songs or traditional melodies or traditional instruments come to that because we used... I think the first time we went to Oliver's um, to show him what we could do, we took fiddle, mandolin, English concertina, guitar, auto harp, Appalachian dulcimer... And spoons. Right. <laughs> Assuming he <laughs> to wouldn't show have your spoon. versatility. Exactly. <laughs> and he was impressed, obviously. He, oh, he was impressed he, by your performance. He loved it. Yeah. He loved it. He'd been looking for something different for Bagpuss. And it was so interesting because the whole premise of the show is that inside this shop, which doesn't sell anything, are all things which are lost or broken or need mending or reusing or recycling very much ahead of its time. And when you think about it, that's exactly what we did with the music. You know, we reused it, we recycled it, we remade it, we mended it in a way. W would you sing a, a song, a Bagpuss song oh, for us? Oh, most certainly. Yeah. Shall I do that yeah, now? Well, yeah, what would you like oh, to well, sing? Look, why don't I sing The Bony King of Nowhere, who actually sat on this lovely cushion because poor old king... I never thought I'd say something like that. Poor old king. <laughs> Poor old king um, sat had, on a cold throne, so he had to have a nice... Because he was bony. Because <laughs> he was bony. <laughs> OK. Well, that would be great. It's a hardship. Right. The bony king of nowhere sat upon his throne. He didn't much like sitting there because his throne was... His throne was made of stone. His throne was made of marble white, the feet were made of gold. It was a royal throne, all right, but oh dear, it was, it was extremely cold. This poor old king of nowhere sat there feeling chilly. He said to go on sitting here is really very exceptionally silly. He jumped up on the tea table and said, please, will you find? It's soft and suitable to warm a king's feet and see what you can find. 
they put him on a wool sack that rubbed up his knees. They rolled him on a feather bed, the feathers made him. They simply made him sneeze. They put him on a rocking horse. They couldn't keep it still. They rolled him in a hammock, and the rocking made him. It made him very ill. This poor old king of nowhere. He sat there feeling sad. He said, if you could help me, I'd be very, very exceptionally glad. Two mice jumped up from somewhere behind their royal chum. They said, dear king, here is a thing to warn the royal and stop it feeling numb. The thing, it was a cushion of silk and gold brocade, soft and small and beautiful and very neatly, very neatly made. Now this happy king of nowhere is smiling on his throne. His smile is rosy, his seat is cosy, although his throne is stone is stone. The mice have made it nice, so nice. He is a happy king. Well, Sandra, I could sit here all day in this beautiful room listening to you sing, but I have to remind you that this is a podcast <laughs> called Folk on Foot. I could show you my feet. <laughs> I do have some, and would they you... do thump when I'm playing. <laughs> Sorry. Would you, would you stand on them and take us out for a walk? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I love showing this bit of Northumberland to people. Where are you going to take us? Uh, so great. We can just go from my kitchen door... Uh, down the lane, down to the River Coquette, walk round the river to the Black Bridge and then back up the uh, the road to, to here. It's a little circular walk which we do often and which is it's lovely to do on any day, but we've got some good weather. Let's so, go yes, out there. let's do it. We're going down towards the river. We are. I'm I'm interested to know, Sandra, what brought you to this part of Northumberland in the first place, because you're originally from London, aren't you? I am. I'm from the East End. I was born in Romford, actually. Anyway, Nancy's father, Ron Elliot, was uh, Northumbrian from the next but one village, Broomhill, a Northumbrian piper, wonderful musician. And we'd spent a lot of time up here ever since we'd been together. He'd always wanted to come back and live in Northumberland, although we met in London. Did you meet through music? Oh, yes. How, how did you meet? <laughs> he turned up on my doorstep with his Northumbrian pipes out of the actual blue. <laughs> and how had he known of you? How did he know well, where to find you? Oh, well, I'm, you, know, you were famous. I was a bit famous. Yeah, yeah. But also we ran a fabulous uh, folk club in the East End of London. John Faulkner and I, I was married to John at the time, and uh, he'd gone to that club the night before and I hadn't gone that night, John had, and he'd asked if he could come and uh, come and play some music with us. And we, uh, yeah, we just hit it off straight away. It was wonderful. He had a great ear, um, you know, immediate kind of understanding of how tunes worked and so on. So, yes, we... Uh, 
we got together through music. And, and did he used to teach you tunes and you used to teach him tunes? No, no, it was all one way. <laughs> <laughs> what, who, who taught whom? He taught me. Um, he taught me the Northumbrian piping repertoire, of which he was a great exponent and knew a great deal. In fact, <laughs> Nancy reminded me of this. Uh, my daughter Nancy reminded me of this the other day. I was asking if she had my copy of Folk Song in England, A.L. Lloyd's book. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, I know it's, I have because I know it's your copy because Dad made lots of rude remarks in the margin. <laughs> <laughs> what, rude remarks about your playing? Or no, his... about Bert Lloyd oh, really? getting things wrong. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, perhaps practically all the references to Northumbrian piping. Uh, not completely accurate, oh, let's dear. say. <laughs> so, yes. I can see why you would want to come back here, and I presume that when you came back here, a lot of oh, these houses... Oh, none of this was here. here. No, not at all, absolutely, Matthew. It, so, was, uh, it was fields, fields, fields. And, and did you miss London when you came here? Because it's a big, big change. It's a huge change. Ron warned me that I wouldn't like the winters because they're long and hard and, you know, <laughs> the night's gone forever. But I loved it. I loved it from the moment we first lived here. I loved it before then. So, no, I missed... i tell you what I missed about London. I missed the multiculturalism, you know, multi-ethnicity of London. We're going to go down here, yeah, actually. Right, yeah. But yeah. before we do... Can I just tell you about Tylery Cottage? Yes, this is the stone cottage here on the yes. right. Yes. Yeah. Now, it's, as you can see, it's been tarted up. It never had a white picket fence. That's not Northumbrian in the least. Uh, but it's been tarted up. Originally, it was fairly tumbled down. Stone cottage, a tied cottage, because it's owned by the Duke of Northumberland. And the old couple who lived in there, Jack and Mary, he had been a woodman for the Duke of Northumberland. And as you can see, if you look across this field, do you see the plantation of trees? Yes. He planted that in the 1930s. Wow. And every time I used to come walking here, Jack and I would put the world to rights. And he once said to me, how many of your solicitors and your politicians can look at something like that and say, I planted that? Huge satisfaction in oh, that, isn't there? absolutely. Yeah, because it's Abs a very extensive plantation. Ex absolutely. Are you okay with this? Uh, we like a bit, a bit of rough, rough terrain. You like a bit of we, rough. We're happy okay. to like a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a train going over now. Ah, now, yes. That's the London Northeastern Line. And yeah. we do sometimes see deer over that side of the... Sorry. <laughs> I do tend to stop and admire the view. Oh, the other right. thing I do, Matthew, yeah. if I get really tired, I'll say something like, oh, gosh, a badger, and I'll stand and watch what? the non-existent badger. <laughs> Is that all right? That's fine by me. Yeah, no, I, I, now you've explained it all to me, I'll, I'll go along with you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and has being in Northumberland affected you musically as well? I mean, obviously you learned those tunes from your from husband. Yeah. But has it affected the repertoire that you're interested in? And no, I still love playing them, and so does Nancy.
I've spent the lamps of night arguing with Catherine Tickell and Katrina MacDonald yeah. about the repertoire. Arguing about what? We're going right here. Okay. About the nature of it, the character of it, because uh, for me, what's very special about the repertoire are the three two hornpipes, for instance, mm -hmm. which are just wonderful, wonderful tunes in that delightful time signature, which is not a waltz, although it's got a triple feel to it, and it's not a hornpipe, because, although it's got a kind of four or two feel to it as well. It's just got this very distinctive time signature. And I love them. Everybody loves the three twos in Northumberland. Why does it cause an argument, though? <laughs> because, <laughs> because they say, or they said that particular drunken night, <laughs> they said, no, they're only here because that's what the collectors wanted to collect. Right. Now, you have to admit, and we know this, don't we, from other folk repertoire, that, of course, all collectors have an agenda and they have a sense of what they feel is, you know, the authentic repertoire of a region. So when <laughs> Cecil Sharp and co were setting yeah. out, or, or Ralph Vaughan Williams were yeah. setting out, they were looking for a particular kind of music and ignoring some other kinds of music. Is that what you're saying? I think one could make an argument for that, yes. I mean, I'm sure that both of them were delighted and surprised by material they hadn't expected to find or looked for. But at the same time, they, they certainly had, I think, a concept of what, you know, um, agricultural life, rural pursuits and music were about and what they, what they really wanted to hear. Vaughan Williams, of course, really wanted to hear modal tunes. And if you look for them, they're jolly well there. And they're beautiful, they're very beautiful. You know, if you think of things like uh, the ship, poor ship's captain, uh, lovely Joan, all those lovely modal tunes that he loved so much and uh, incorporated into his compositions as well. And did they have a romanticised view of what the countryside was oh, like? Oh, I think so, don't you? <laughs> it was bloody grim, wasn't it? I can imagine it was, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the thing that's missing, certainly from Sharp's collecting, is the more industrial repertoire, which, of course, you know, later on was most definitely um, kind of filled in, if you like, by other collectors and so on. And, of course, the broadside tradition 
saved a lot of material that might have got lost and perhaps didn't even pass into the oral tradition anyway. But I think he would not have been interested in the kind of things that, for instance, Bert and Ewan were you and McCall, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bert yeah. Lloyd, yeah. Sorry, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing that awful thing of... Not at all, no, well, these are <laughs> friends of yours, so well, uh, you're were. entitled to do that. <laughs> um, and we might talk a little bit about your association with them in a minute, but I was wondering whether you might sing as a song associated with Northumberland. Oh, and where yes. would be the good place to do I that? I can do that. But we're going through into the wood now, which we is planted by your friend Jack. Private woodland. Well, if you go a bit further... Permissive path runs along the fields, not the river bank. Okay, so we'll do as we're told by the sign, will we? Possibly well, not. I think we're going to actually contravene <laughs> some kind of law, but I'm all up for that. Okay, oh, definitely. everybody. We've, done, we've been on the right to roam. I'm sure. <laughs> I bet you have. But I do want to show you the River Coquet. No, oh, definitely. It is and that's spelled C O Q U E T. U E T, that's yeah. right. Oh, and here it is. It's a and big river, it actually, is. isn't it? It's a big and river. And here's a bench. Oh, yes. Sandra, would you sit on the bench? I could sit on the bench. And would you play I? this instrument that I've carried all the way here? <laughs> I'm better now. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be in trouble. <laughs> Look at this great wide river. And very still today, actually. Not moving very fast, is it? And no, Surrounded I mean, by your friend's trees. We're also on a bit really wide bend here, aren't we? So that will slow it down a bit. Is there fishing in this river? Oh, there's definitely yeah. salmon river. Definitely a very good salmon river. You can almost she see said Paul, as if she... <laughs> but you can almost see Paul Whitehouse and Bob Mortimer, can't, can't you, in the can't in the you. background? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let me give you your concertina. Okay. Is this an, is this an English? Oh yes. yes. What? What? Yes, most definitely. Yes, it's interesting. This was the last instrument. Good morning. Do you want me to sing along? <laughs> <laughs> if you know the chorus, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Too. I, hope I hope you knew that. I noticed you know, that. I yes. thought you did. And you were saying it was the last <laughs> instrument you took up. Yeah. When did you take it up? How did it come into your repertoire? Um, I actually started playing it just before we did Bagpuss, because it's me actually. I don't think John plays it. He didn't get on with it very well. He was much better with strings. Great guitarist, lovely fiddle player, very neat on the banjo, uh, the uh, mandolin. But um, yes, I, so I must have taken it up then. Yeah. You'd hope and what I do you like about it? I like its lightness, the lightness that you can get into playing tunes on it. Because it's a bellows thing, but you have to really use the buttons to get that lift. Because it's not like the Anglo, which is push-pull, where you've kind of got a lightness built into the tunes already because you have to change bellows stroke to change the note. But you don't on the English Constituma. OK, it's the same whether I press the bellows pull the bellows out or press it in. So you have to change the button to get a different note. But it also you can get gorgeous chords, really gorgeous chords. Yeah. 
and so on. So yes, lovely chord. So it's great for accompanying. I really enjoy singing with it. It means you can either play along with tune, which I don't actually do very often, because I think, well, what's the point? The voice is singing the tune. Do I really need to play it? Uh, but I can play chords behind it or play counter melodies and so on. Yeah. What are you going to sing for us? Well, let me sing a bit of um, uh, the Cheviot Hills, which I actually wrote before I came up here. Uh, but they're not it, far away, are they? <laughs> not really. <laughs> they're Just over there. Uh, where are we? Is that due west? I think that mm, might be due west. They're possibly. over there anyway, yeah. From Berwick on Tweed to Newcastle on Tyne runs the shore. Rivers and forests, green valleys and wild windy moor. This is Northumberland, county that I love the best. Guarded by high granite hills that lie to the west. Blueberry grows there, cloudberry and purple moor grass. Curlews and sandpipers startled will rise as you pass. And sheep with black faces may wander and still safely graze. In the Cheviot Hills there is time, there is peace, there is space. Children with white city faces and men from the mine Blown by the breezes are hugged by the mists as they climb Lovers and mothers walk by one another and smile They all walk in the Cheviot Hills and feel free for a while But tender and true are Northumberland's women and men. They fought harsh invaders before and will fight them again. To walk in the air free from fear is a right they'll defend. And the beautiful Cheviot Hills, they will guard to the That was wonderful, thank you so much. And just to see you sing it, sitting here on a bench by the, by the broad river was beautiful experience. So oh, thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Right, so okay. So where are we going that way? We're going to follow the river round. I'll follow yep. you. So yes, we'll there's a, a bit. lovely bit of beach. Oh, nice. It's a bit 
murky looking, actually, isn't it? It's a bit brown, isn't the it? The river, yes. Was looking very brown this morning. Was okay. it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, there's nothing like a river, is there? It's odd, really, because I, when I think of it, I've nearly always lived by a river, because in the East End, in the East End, we lived like four streets from the docks. From, from the Thames, right, <laughs> yeah, okay, from yeah. The Thames. So, yes, I do love to have a have some water nearby. Well, here's a lovely beach. Yes. I'm just going to walk down onto it to get closer to the bank. And it's very, a lot of pebbles. Now, it's traditional to skim stones. OK, I'll get a good We call stone. this Phoebe's Beach because we had a dog called Phoebe who was adorable. She used to love this beach and we would come here and She'd swim and we'd skim stones. Well, I've got a little piece of what looks like a tile. It is. Actually, which is very it nicely is. flat. Fantastic. So I think we can get a bit okay. of skimming going Oh, I've got an advantage. You've got a good flat. Yeah, you've got a much better pebble than Go I have. Then. Okay. Oh, uh, well, perfect. one or two. That went. Oh, no, there, oh, look, look at that. Did that it, went, that went, right? yeah, quite a long way, but yeah, only one, really one bounce. Here's a good flat bit. I'm getting into this now. Oh, I know. <laughs> Do you know that's, that poem by Adrian Mitchell? I used to know it and it's completely gone out of my head. And it's about skimming stones to make a good time last longer. Oh, right. That that's a great image, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's skim, skim some more. I'm having a good time. <laughs> Okie dokie. That was hopeless. Absolutely inept. Oh, no. Hang on. Have you found a good one? Oh, look. That's nice, isn't it? Nice little flatten. Okay. Let's see. Go on. Oh, huge oh, bounce. Yeah, oh, huge bounce. <laughs> no, no, it made a lovely sound. You're a sound It was person. a good splosh. It was a good splosh. <laughs> Let's go and sit on the bench. But it gives us Adrian Mitchell's right, isn't he? Totally right. <laughs> Sorry, thank there you. you Lovely. Someone's kindly put a waterproof. Yes, it's the, cover uh, on the it's bench. the fisherman. So I wanted to, to hear more, Sandra, about your route into folk music. Did did you come from a folky family or anything? I like came that? from a very musical family. My mother had twelve brothers and sisters. They all sang. They could all knock out a tune on the old Joanna. So it was totally untutored, but very musical. And music was what we did. That was our main entertainment, you know. So what kind of music, you know? Oh, I mean, really good. Standard jazz, uh, blues, kind of crooner songs from the 30s and 40s, probably before even then. So you came from this musical family, but what was your musical...? My into... Well, um, twofold, really. First of all... Alan Lomax and then a bit later Ewan McCall were actually doing radio programmes 
of archive recordings of things like blues singers, travellers, and all that kind of thing. And I was knocked out by people like, well, Br Brunsey, obviously, Bibliol Brunsey and stuff like that. And even people like Margaret Barry, mm -hmm. the, Irish, the Irish singer. Yes, yes the yes. Irish traveller singer. And I thought I'd never heard music like this before. And then somebody gave me an album of Peggy's, Peggy Seekers. And again, I just thought it was sublime stuff. You know, when you compared it, and this was the 1950s, late 50s, uh, you compared that to the kind of popular music that was being sung. You know, lay down your arms and surrender to mine, all that kind of stuff. And there was Peggy singing these absolutely stunning banjo-accompanied traditional ballads. And that really pulled me in the radio and the album. And I think you worked for Peggy Seeger and Ewan McCall, did you not? I lived with them. Yeah, well, how did that happen? <laughs> so you were listening to their music on the radio know, the and on the minute, album. I'm in a menage how... a trois. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> how did you get into contact with them? Um, I was nursing at the time after I left school and some nursing friends of mine were deeply into... Oh, I've got skiffle, by the way. I was in a skiffle group. Uh, before this, but um, these and friends... Skiffle, skiffle was the, like the do-it-yourself music, was wasn't exactly it? It was exactly that. kind of forerunner of punk, in a way, that totally. you could pick up a washboard and... cleaner. <laughs> do a lot <laughs> of spitting. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my, my nursing mates took me to the singers' club when I was 18, and I saw Ewan and Peggy, and I remember sitting on the floor in this fairly dark room, and lots of young people. It's so interesting to see the difference in audiences now. You know, you look at photographs of folk clubs and I'm afraid it's a sea of grey. Well, the young people who were there then are still Ex in the audience now, exactly. I think, aren't they? You know, exactly, that's the issue. Matthew. And so you saw Ewan and Peggy performing. I saw Ewan and Peggy. I can't remember if Bert Lloyd was on that night. I think he probably was. And Fitzroy Coleman, who was um, a Caribbean singer-guitarist who made up calypsos like they did in those days. But it was there I saw Ewan sing Van Diemen's Land, which has just, for some extraordinary reason, stuck in my mind forever, partly because of what it's about. I now, uh, for the last nearly 30 years, have had an Australian son-in-law. And it's about uh, people so being transported exactly, to what was then Van Diemen's Land is now Tasmania, I think. Exactly, the island and of that's Australia. where James uh, Fagan's mother comes from. She comes from Tasmania. The other thing for me, oh, two other things, was the fact that it was in a, what I would have called at the time a weird scale, but I would now, of course, say it was a mood or two. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, and thirdly, Peggy's accompaniment because she played guitar on it. It was incidentally, it was not Sam Lorna, Harry Cox's version of Van Diemen's Land. The traditional singer. Exactly, from Norfolk. But anyway, shortly after that, I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like them. I'm going to sing songs like them. Uh, so I bought more albums and I bought The Singing Island, which was, apart from the Penguin Book of English Folk Songs, or the English Book of Penguin Folk Songs, as one of my students <laughs> called it. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? That's wonderful. <laughs> um, so I bought books and I learnt songs. And before 
a year was out, I was singing from the floor at the Singers Club and Yun and Peggy seemed to be interested in what I did. I sang unaccompanied, I sang Scarborough Fair, first time they heard me, which is interesting because we have a version of Scarborough Fair up here, a Northumbrian version. Really? It's called Whittingham Fair. Whittingham is where Alistair Anderson lives, the concertina player, and they have their own version of Whittingham Fair. It's very beautiful. Would you like a little burst of it? Oh, I'd love it, yeah. That would be great. <laughs> let's get, the take, let's get this out. Yeah. Sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one who lives there. She once was a true lover of mine. Tell her to make me a cambric shirt. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Without any seam or needlework, then she'll be a true lover of mine. It's so interesting how songs move from place to place Absolutely. and have different versions, isn't it? Isn't and, it lovely? And that was the first song that you and McCall and Peggy Seeger would have heard. Well, not Whittingham Fair, obviously. Not Whittingham, and not that tune. He, yeah. I, I sang the, or, the, uh, the ordinary one, the one we all know. The best-known one, yeah. Are you going to Whittingham? Uh, are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, St. Rosemary and Tyne. That one is yeah. the one I sang then. But I sing this one now because it's so lovely, as you say. You know, it's it's come here and they've made it their own. Mm. It's, it's Northumbrian now. So how did then, then how did you come to live with you and, and Peggy? Well, um, I became quite a regular singer from the floor at the Singers Club, so I must have been 19, going on 20. And they asked me to stay behind one evening and said, look, um, we're looking for somebody to come and help Betsy. That was Ewan's mother. Uh, Betsy Miller, wonderful singer, scariest lady in the whole world, fighting the life out of me for the next two years. We need someone to come and help Betsy look after Neil, who was the, the son they had then, and then they had Callum while I was living with them. Would you like to come? And in exchange, I mean, they did pay me, not very much. It was like three quid a week or something, but I had my board. But in exchange, I had one-to-one classes with both you and, and with Peggy. Which must have been amazing, wasn't it? It was amazing. <laughs> I, I kept pinching myself. I could never believe it was happening to me. You know, there I was with Ewan McCall, the architect of the folk song revival. And there we were sitting in their music room with you and either discussing things like the hero in folk song or Marxist analysis of the ballads or actually working vocally with me because that's one of the things we did. He would give me songs to work on and then I'd sing them to him and he'd give me feedback. Was he a hard taskmaster? No, he wasn't. He wasn't effusive either and he wasn't kindly but he was just, A, generous with his time, and B, so logical 
because uh, with his feedback because what he was doing was coming from his study of what traditional singers did you know so i hadn't done that work he'd done that work so the very first thing he gave me to learn was a ballad called strawberry town which is a beautiful beautiful ballad of social misalliance rich girl poor boy that kind of thing this was the very first time I sang for them in their music room. So I sang it for Ewan and Peggy. And they looked at each other. And Peggy then said, we think you're going to be a singer. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel about that? I felt ten feet tall, <laughs> considering I'm only five. That was pretty good. And did you have to learn to unlearn Things. I mean, in order to become a singer of folk songs, was his approach to say, you've got to be unadorned, you've got to be straightforward, you've got to be like the Sam Lanas, the, you know, the, the working people that we've recorded? Was that what he was trying to uh, teach you? That's most definitely what he was trying to teach. But, I mean, at the same time, what he was also doing was saying, this is as disciplined an art form, a vocal art form, as, you know, classical opera, coloratura, singing, you know, right through the range and so on. You know, it was really a new discipline, but a, again, a totally logical discipline. And, and then you joined something called the Critics Group. Yes, And I know well, the name was yeah. slightly spontaneously thought up. Oh, dear, dear, dear. I know. <laughs> We're still living it down, Matthew. Honestly, seriously. What was the Critics Group, in, well, in, in fact? Um, Several singers had asked Ewan if he'd be prepared to start some singing workshops specifically to look at exactly what he'd been working on with me. He was quite reluctant to do it because he knew he'd get flack from everybody because it would be the same old thing, you know, McCall sounding off about what we should all do, let alone the fact he actually knew what we should all do, in my opinion. Anyway, um, eventually he said yes that he would start something. So the group started, it wasn't called the Critics Group at all, it wasn't called anything at all. We met on Tuesday evenings, fortnightly, at their place in Beckenham. And who was there? Uh, John Faulkner. I'm not sure that Frankie Armstrong joined us right away, but there was a wonderful Scottish contingent. There was Bobby Campbell and Gordon McCulloch and Enoch Kent. Luke Kelly. And I read that Ewan was using techniques like Stanislavski techniques from acting... Absolutely. ..to help you do voice projection and to help you get into the characters of, yeah. the, of the people you were singing about. Exactly. Is that right? Absolutely, it's right. He brought a lot of the skills that they'd learned and developed in Theatre Workshop, he and Joan Littlewood. I mean, they'd been taught by the best movement teachers in Europe, people who'd studied with Laban, for instance, the best voice teachers. So we were getting the benefit of all that stuff. The Stanislavski stuff was really interesting because that was working almost exclusively and specifically with Stanislavski's idea of the application of the idea of if. So if you were working on a ballad, for instance, and the question would be, well, who do you identify with in the ballad? What do you want to communicate about what this person is experiencing? We would then use the application of the idea of if to the role and think, OK, I am not that person, but if I was that person, what have I got in my own experience, personal experience, that I can remember, recapture and reapply 
to the person in that situation, in that context. I mean, it all stuff. sounds amazing, but it also sounds it <laughs> incredibly thorough and incredibly professional applying to something that you think of as a spontaneous act. Oh. You know, you think of folk music as the music of the people. You know, people sit in pubs and they sing songs however they sing them. It's not really a big discipline and all the rest of it. But obviously he and you and the group thought it was a discipline. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I mean, that is not to scorn that aspect of the folk revival. It was very important that people sang or sat around in pub rooms and, and sang spontaneously. Of course it was. You know, that kept repertoire going, that kept the sense of identity of a type of music going. But what we were doing also, or what Ewan was trying to help us do, I think was something else. It was saying, look, this is an art form. It hasn't just come down to us because people remembered a few old lines of something their granny used to sing. It is about something very specific that generations have identified with and have maintained in its you know, complete form and so on. And if we're going to do it justice, we should treat it like an art form. We should work on our voices, we should work on our research so that we know what the songs are about, where they came from, what they represent culturally and all the rest of it. So, yes, it was fascinating, fascinating stuff. And he was a controversial figure, wasn't he? And there were, not, there were those who disagreed with his approach, Absolutely. weren't there? And Absolutely, how did and he, still are. How did he respond when people criticised him? Uh, he wasn't good at criticism. <laughs> no, it was not his favourite thing being criticised. <laughs> um, yes, he would get cross. I mean, he had a ferocious temper, it has to be said. But when he thought you got it right, he made you feel, you know, that it was all worth it. And he had a political agenda as well, didn't he? You know, I mean, he, he had did. a Marxist approach to, totally. to life, and yeah. I think he wanted to see the revolution come. Didn't absolutely, he? absolutely. He did, did he? How did he think the revolution would happen? Oh dear, there were a couple of ways that were fairly cranky. It has to be said. He was. He talked at one point about the folk club being the the kind of um, where we would develop cadres, revolutionary cadres. Well, so there were folk and clubs. And we would were... lead the revolution from the folk. Clubs. Oh, I didn't laugh at the time, mind, but now I can. <laughs> but he, but he definitely did think that there was a, a political motive to the singing as well. There were absolutely, Matthew, a great way of putting it. He felt that the music had a role to play, not only in the sense that it represented the voice of the people who were unvoiced or silenced, if you like, in all previous histories, that the, the folk songs and ballads and the work songs and so on were the way that they'd kept their identity alive, but also that that would be a way that we could carry the future forward as well. St Mary's churchyard in Morpeth one September day to find the grave of my dead sister to find the place where Emily lay a dark and stony path led where she rested the sky was grey the rain came down I found her monument 
frayed and broken and choking weeds grew all around Emily Davis and suffragette heroine died at the Derby in 1913 blood on the banner bright purple and green and white shed for a woman's right to liberty I discovered that Emily Wilding Davison, the only suffragette to die in the cause, um, she died under the King's Horse trying to pin a banner to the King's Horse at the Derby. I found out that she's buried in Morpeth, which is 15 miles south of here. And I was deeply shocked because the monument itself was cracked covered in lichen, the grave and the surrounding stones was full of weeds. It was awful, awful, awful. And I was very disturbed by so it. So completely neglected? Completely neglected. It isn't now, I have to tell you. Uh, but then, this was in 89, it was desperately neglected. And what was interesting, there was a, a festival in Morpeth that year, and I went along and sang this song, and lots of elderly women came up to me afterwards and said, we try and keep the grave in good order, but it gets vandalised. No. I know. Yes, in this a terrible day and thing age, to hear. A terrible thing to hear. Yeah. But that, as I say, that's completely changed, and now she is honoured, and her passing is marked every year on International Women's Day. Was not her sacrifice supreme and selfless? And shall we keep her memory? Is this forgotten ground in Morpeth churchyard the honour due to Emily? Emily Davison, suffragette heroine, died at the Derby in 1913. Blood on the banner bright, purple and green and white, shed for a woman's right. You've talked about the different generations and the fact that sometimes you feel that folk audiences are a little bit on the old side. Um, but you've taught on the folk degree course where there's a new generation of young people coming to get involved in folk music. Mm. They're just amazing young people. All the students we've ever had through our hands. I was there for oh, 20 years, and now Nancy is a lecturer on the same course. And the students that come through are extraordinary. They're gifted, disciplined, fun. But also, what I see when they come out of the course, and I had a wonderful experience of this recently, what I see is that they are making careers for themselves which are important careers so they are working as and this could be just one person a musician a singer a songwriter a recording artist a teacher so that sets them apart 
I suppose for my generation, you'd say we were messianic about the music, but they have that dedication too. They have that sense of this is really special stuff, you know. We've got to both preserve it and move it forward. It's and, just. And talking wonderful. about Nancy, yeah. I think we might need to get back to the house because Nancy is coming to join us. She and, is. Um, and, and you're going to sing and play with her yeah. as well, which would be absolutely magnificent. It's and, my fab thing to do. It's my favourite thing in the world to play with my daughter. Sandra's already told us what joy it gives her to play with you, Nancy. Oh, She's already lovely. talked about that. Yeah. And I wondered what it feels like for you to play with your mum. Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. We've just never not done it, really, have we? I mean, uh, there's no, no memory of anything previous to that. <laughs> kind of primordial soup. And then, <laughs> so and what, what, what's your earliest memory of, of making music in, in the um, house? Well, I mean, although we didn't live in Northumberland for quite a lot of my childhood, we were, that it's still the vast majority of the music happened up here, didn't totally. it? So yeah. we were coming up here for gatherings and to see the family. And so it was, it, yeah, a lot of it, not exclusively, because North London had some fantastic oh, yeah. Irish music and all sorts of different trad music scenes. Um, but yeah, it was up here. It was frankly being welcomed into the sessions and and people's houses people like will taylor and alistair anderson yeah. and all the people that we used to play with and yeah. um yeah pretty pretty close quarters isn't it so it we would was. and i would i i remember because all of the traveling musicians from especially scotland and shetland and ireland to some degree america they would all pass through the village halls do you remember yeah, that they totally. were the gigs that you were that close to the players that remember you loved debbie scott debbie scott Debbie who Scott was a Shetland such player. an important yeah. influence on you, wasn't she? Well, it was great to see a young woman exactly. playing music. Catherine Tickell was a you know, similar case in point. Yeah. So, yeah, I imagine we, we watched that. I watched that and then brought it home and tried to replicate it, really. Yeah. Would you sing a, a song for us together? Yes, why don't we? What would you sing? I think we'll sing one that we learnt from Nancy's dad, Ron Elliott. And this is um, from the North East. We're not attempting... The accent? No, it is quite, quite dialect-written, but it's just... I think you can just do it, you can't can just, you, in a, yeah. in a middle, yeah. middle range. Yeah. But yeah. And what's it called? The Schumacher. Yeah, I did, I did the North East. <laughs> <laughs> I did a global stuff. You didn't say shoemaker. No, no I said you know what you mean. I know what you mean. to school to learn to be a stocking knitter. I went wrong and I played the fool and I married with a shoemaker. Shoemaker led a cracker, balls wax and sinking water, three rows of rotten leather.
hands are like a curly's yaps, his face is like a high-load leather, his ears are like, I don't know what, his hair is like a bunch of heather. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you, Nancy. And Sandra, thank you very much for inviting us into your wonderful home. Can I just say the food is amazing here? The scones. We've had scones. We've had homemade leek soup. We've had cheese. It's been astonishing. But most of all, it's been amazing to hear your stories and your songs. Thank you so much for joining us on Folk on Foot. And thanks to you, Nancy. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this wonderful episode of Folk on Foot as much as we enjoyed making it. And if you'd like us to continue doing this, then please make a donation to support us. You can do it in two ways. You can become a patron and get great rewards, including films of all the songs that we've shot on location across the United Kingdom. Or you can just simply buy us a coffee if you don't want to make a regular contribution. And you can do both things at folkonfoot.com slash support us. Every donation, no matter how small, makes a big difference to us and helps us to keep going making this glorious podcast. So please support us if you can. <laughs>